Welcome to The Carlina Show, where ordinary people share their hero's journey. I'm your host, Carlina Angwin, and this is episode 20 of the podcast. Today on the show, we have Bryn Jonathan Butler. Bryn is a boxer and the author of four books, The Grandmaster, Interview with Mike Tyson, A Cuban Boxer's Journey, and the book we'll be discussing today, The Domino Diaries, which was shortlisted for the Penn ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing and a Boston Globe Best Book of 2015. In today's episode, Bryn walks us through his journey, which starts in his hometown of Vancouver and eventually leads to 12 years in Cuba, training with Olympic boxers, writing their stories, and eventually filming a documentary called Split Decision. We also discuss a new long-form article, Giving Up the Ghost, which will be published in Hazlitt Magazine next February. You can visit the podcast website at carlina.net to learn more about Bryn and link to the show notes. From there, you can find past episodes, connect on social media, and sign up for the mailing list. I'd like to thank Stephen Lorca for video editing and production, so we can post our episodes on the Carlina Show YouTube channel, as well as the podcast. Now I bring you Bryn Jonathan Butler. So I guess we, we met a little over a week ago um, on Facebook. And it's interesting because um, you had shown up on my like friends' suggestions for a while now, maybe a couple of months or so. I've seen like the back of your head with your pug or pugue. <laughs> T-shirt. Puig. Puig. Okay, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> and um, and so and so we connected, I guess, um, like a little over a week ago, and um, and I've been um, trying to learn as much as I can about you. So a lot of the information um, that I have in my brain right now is kind of a combination of reading your book, The Domino Diaries, and. Um, reading this, the article that's, that you're going to publish in February. Um, I have the name of it somewhere. What was it? Giving up the ghost. Um, and, and also listening to, um, different podcast interviews you've done. So I guess, so my questions, um, are kind of come from all, all of that. And, um, but what I'd like to, to focus on, um, in this conversation conversation are the topics of um, identity um, obsession suicide your relationship with women mm-hmm. and um, pilgrimage so I know those are a lot of different topics but um, <laughs> do you have five hours no I'm just kidding. <laughs> so um, so those are those are the topics that I'm interested in just, and, and they seem to kind of come through all of, all of your work and your, and your re- interviews and all. So is that okay? <laughs> no, those are great. Those are great topics. Okay. Okay. So for the people um, who don't know who you are, um, and uh, I think a lot of my listeners may, may not have heard of you. So I, I'd like to just get started with you maybe telling us a little bit about like your, your formative years and, um, and what led you to, to Cuba. Um, and then after that, I want to go into more about this article that you, that you wrote, that's, that's going to be out in February. So, um, Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So if you want to just talk a little bit about your, about your formative years, like who, who, who is the early Bryn? <laughs> well, I was trying to write fiction. I, I started writing a novel when I was 18. I went to, went to Europe for the first time and almost immediately when I got back, I started a novel, which I finished when I was 20. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> In those days, you had to send it all out by hard copy. So I sent it to a number of agents and a number of publishers, and and everywhere it failed. But there was um, one kind of redeeming letter that came back that was handwritten from a, a major editor at a big publishing house that said, "You are, you're, this is the wrong book, but you're in the right profession." Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I thought, okay, <laughs> I guess back back to the drawing board. And, and so I wrote another book, and this one sort of met the same fate in terms of just not being able to find a home. So I was really struggling with fiction. Um, while I was do- doing that, I was also an amateur boxer. And at the age of 20, I went to Cuba thinking – uh, the Old Man in the Sea, the basis for The Old Man in the Sea, Gregorio Fuentes, was still alive and living in the same village where The Old Man in the Sea took place. And he was 102, so I wanted to meet him. And he was very close with Hemingway for 20 years. And I just couldn't believe you could have this connection to somebody who was born in the 19th century. And then because of communism, uh all of the great boxers over there and baseball players uh, were making the same amount of money as you would selling peanuts on a street corner. They were living a little better, but the whole point of the system, uh, an egalitarian value system, was that everybody would make the same. So I thought perhaps there's a way into this where I could find either Olympic coaches or Olympic champions who were there who would offer me private boxing lessons to sort of continue my progress with that through them. And it only took a couple of days to track down a two-time Olympic champion at Cuba's oldest gym. So I was, whatever money I could earn in Canada, I was going back to Cuba as often as I could to continue training with these people. And what I found was, as I finished a third book that was unpublishable, I took some, Facebook I think at that time had what was called notes, so internet was expensive in Cuba then. It was very difficult to, to find. You had to go to only a few different hotels, had terrible connection. And so my kind of task for an arbitrary reason was just to write as quickly as I could for the course of an hour my impressions of what it was like being in, in Havana at that time. And I had a number of my friends reach out to me and say, why are you not writing about this? Why is this not your focus? And I thought, what could possibly be interesting about a fledgling amateur boxer in, in Cuba? There's no, there's no substance to it. There's no action. And, and just uh, that's really where things started to sort of coalesce into a career that became like a Cuba focus. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your, your younger years, like growing up and your family and what led you to discover boxing or have an interest in boxing. Well, it was bullying for me. I wasn't interested in boxing as a sport, as, as an observer. Um, I, I had, and it wasn't like a sustained bullying during my childhood. There was just an incident where I was duped into observing a fight, which I'd never done before. And 
it turned out that it had all been orchestrated on my behalf so that everybody could attack me once I got out to this uh, field next to a forest. My, my elementary school was next to a very large forest in Vancouver. And so I wasn't hurt by what happened. I wasn't, I mean, I was assaulted, but I wasn't injured from what happened. But I was, it was kind of, it's kind of like having your worst day of your life, not just happen, but happen in front of everybody you knew. So I wasn't just defined, my identity wasn't just defined by that incident to myself, but it was also to everybody that I was friends with or acquaintances with, mm -hmm. which I found very hard to deal with. Um, so, yeah. Oh, no, well, tell me about, about your, your, your family first, because um, that, that happened when you were how old? You were 11 when that happened? Yeah, I was 11. Okay. My, my mother was a refugee from, from Budapest. Um, the revolution happened in 1956 when she was six, and she remembers seeing Russian tanks outside her door. And her father left in 1956 as a refugee to Canada, and he tried to raise money and failed a couple times um, over the years to the paperwork, or there were just logistical issues that he ran into um, where things fell apart. And finally, on the third attempt, he succeeded to get the money and, and have the paperwork processed. But by then, his wife no longer wanted to come. She felt her life was in Hungary. And his son also felt the same way, who was a little older than my mother. But my mother at 16 said, I want to go. So she left and within a year was pregnant and uh, married to somebody that she did not want to be married to. Uh, she dropped out of high school. She didn't speak any English. Um, so she was very quickly struggling with, with a couple of kids and, and living in low-income housing and then... Uh, through kind of a, a funny incident, she had a, a child, her child at daycare, there was another woman that had a, a child at daycare who was uh, married, I think, to a principal, and he, she was cheating on that principal with my father. And she s spoke with my father and said, there's a crazy Hungarian woman who I think you just might get along with, because you, you both have a kind of similar intensity. But she never assumed that my father would fall for this woman, which is exactly what happened. And my, my father instantly um, never went with another woman after that. He was exclusively with my mother forward. And I think I was born two or three years later. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're the youngest of how many? Of three. And uh, my father was at law school at that time. And... Um, Shortly after, he became a child protection lawyer and uh, bought a house for the family. But my brothers were seven and ten years older than me, so that's a that's a big gap to close. I mean, in, so in some ways, I very much feel like I have siblings, but in another way, I think I grew up quite a lot like an only child. Mm -hmm. I saw more of my uncle than I saw of my eldest brother, for example. Right, and when the the bullying incident happened when you, when you were 11, they would have been out of the house, right? 18? Yeah, they, they weren't really there. They okay. weren't really there. Okay. Um, so, and, and then, let's see. So the bullying incident happened, and then how did that, how did that impact you? Well, 
I felt I felt really terrorized. I think in my own imagination more than anything. Um, I was really really petrified to leave my house. I my attendance record at school became more not going to school than actually attending. I would I would find places to hide in people's backyards. I'd hide in uh, public bathrooms. I, there were some people that had boats in their backyard, and I would hide under the tarp for hours and hours. It was I, I had no blueprint for what I was trying to do and just avoid going to school, but also not alert people that I was what of what I was doing. It was a very strange kind of um, idiosyncratic AWOL. Mm-hmm. And when I would tell people, you know, if, if my mother found out, obviously, because of this attendance problem, um, she said, you know, what's the problem? Nothing really happened to you. You weren't, you know, you didn't have to go to the hospital or anything. So it was hard to explain the terror and to justify it that I felt because of this incident. And so it lasted for about three years where I was really descending into a lot of hopelessness about ever dealing with it. I just couldn't figure out a way out of that hole. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> when I was 14, there was an interview on television o- over that summer with Mike Tyson, who was in jail for, for rape. And my mother was watching it and she was very upset as she was watching it because she was so struck about how um, counterintuitive the interview he was giving was talking about his own history with bullying talking about the books that he was reading while he was in jail, Count of Monte Cristo and The Great Gatsby and Voltaire and Hemingway and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. She was saying, how has he done this? How has he gone from what we knew him to be to this? This is extraordinary. And as he was talking about his history being bullied and he talks with such a pronounced lisp and a very high-pitched voice, it was the first time I kind of came to this realization that this nightmarish figure that he created, the kind of ultimate victimizer in an alley, was very much a construct of how successful he'd been as a victim in his childhood. Mm-hmm. And the way that he articulated that was the first time I'd ever heard anybody discuss humiliation in a context that felt viscerally accurate to my own experience of it. And so I thought, if he's able to have found a way out of that, and he seemed to take it more personally than I did, which I found extraordinary. Um, I thought my way out is to follow his path. So I need to go to a boxing gym and figure that out. And I need to go to a library and read everything I possibly can about this person because this guy is not who he's pretending to be. And he's, it's a creation. It's, it's, it's an edifice that he's created and, and a construct. And I need to figure out how he did that because I have to do it for myself. Mm-hmm. And that was when you were 14? Yeah. And was the, the person who bullied you, was he still in school? So, did, so when you went there, did you still see him? He was barely attending school. I, I've periodically checked in on his name on the internet, and he's become a, a serial criminal. Um, like, like not one or two incidents, but many incidents. You could see where he was headed mm-hmm. um, even then. Um, I would just see him. I would see him on on the street. I would see him in the neighborhood. Occasionally, he would drop into the school. Um, so there was a sense that he could just show up at any time, which was part of the reason I was very frightened to leave my door. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. okay. And so, <clears throat> let's see. 
so you you went to the boxing gym when you were when you were fourteen. Was it right after you saw the interview with Mike Tyson? Oh yeah, immediately. Immediately the next day, I went to places I'd never been before: a boxing gym and a library. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, how did that change things for you? Um, it was the only time I ever lost consciousness from from boxing. Was the first day they they intentionally created a kind of uh, crucible or baptism of fire where they put you in with somebody who who was going to hurt you mm-hmm. and. Uh, kind of coming out of the trauma of being humiliated to actually be hurt physically from from I was terrified of violence, petrified of it. Um, it was it was just compounding a lot of what I went through the first time. But then you kind of understood that there was a a, a method to it, which is if you can find another feeling beyond wanting to escape to wanting to prove somebody wrong or prove that you can overcome it. Um, you're somewhere new. And I think that was the design of it, is that if you went in for the first day and thought, I never want to do this ever again, you didn't belong there in the first place. Harsh lesson, but um, ultimately I did go back and it became a very different um, structure of trying to rebuild as a person and, and rebuild. Boxing is all about, I think, um, finding finding ways to feel safe in completely unnatural circumstances and to feel comfortable and and the most dangerous people in boxing are the ones who feel happy to be there mm-hmm. and and i've heard the expression that women's biggest fear uh, is about being hurt physically and men's biggest fear is about being humiliated and i think that's an interesting distinction on the sexes um and i've noticed that almost with everybody I've met to a person, men and women, that they're much more afraid of being humiliated through, through exposing themselves in a boxing ring um, than they are about being hurt or injured or permanently um, mm-hmm. you know, damaged in some way, mm-hmm. which I, I think is not, not how casual people watching boxing think of it. So did that change the way you felt about school? Did you feel more confident going back to school after that? Yeah, I, I, I very quickly, you know, you're, you're, I was very small as a kid, and at 14, I grew four inches and, and gained 25 pounds from, from really getting into my physical self with boxing. I mean, I, was, I started doing everything that Mike Tyson was doing in terms of training. So I would run every morning at 4 o'clock in the morning for five miles, and I would go to the boxing gym for two hours a day, six days a week. I started going to the gym, and for the next two years, I kept growing until I went from being four foot eleven and ninety eight pounds at fourteen to five ten and almost two hundred pounds by the time I was seventeen. Mm-hmm. That was a very big transformation. Um, so if you if I meet people that know me as a kid versus meet somebody now, they assume that you've always been kind of the way you are in the world physically now. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the the people I knew younger, it's you're always the little the smallest person in the class sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to encompass that duality a little bit in my perspective being out in the world. After learning how to fight and handling myself, I've never had to fight outside of the ring, and I I found that most boxers are actually very gentle people because they they've actually had to test themselves and improve themselves to themselves, mm-hmm. so that they're not seeking to do it out, outside. Mm-hmm. with people they're not insecure about that 
in the way that I think especially men are out in the world. Yeah, yeah. You you mentioned that um, in, in our conversations before that you had um, experience with um, friends or classmates who who died by suicide. Was that in your in your school? Yeah, there were, there were three of them. Um, two two of them were were quite picked on kids, and then there was just some some incident that I guess gave them gave them a, a, a push, an impetus to actually go through with something that I, I don't know that any of us knew was sort of on the horizon for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of them one of them jumped off off a building and another hung themselves and I think there was an incident with a weapon, um, a, a shooting, which is which is quite unusual for Canada. There's there's you know, compared to the United States, it's it's not a problem really. Mm-hmm. Um, Gun, gun violence, I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there was a little bit of of death death around at school. There was another accident where a girl was skiing and she was out of bounds and she fell off a hill into a creek and died. And I remember very vividly going to school the next day in an empty seat in our history class, and just everybody in tears um, responding to it. And the two kids that were with her. Um, I almost think they just stayed stayed home from school for a week, and when they came back, they were quite different people. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a strange time when you're sort of planning the rest of your life, and for some people, um, you know, we don't recognize these moments in our life that can have such importance. They can seem very accidental, and 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 then they become defined by a tragedy, either accidental or or, or like a suicide. It, it's very hard to look at the life through any other lens than how it ended, mm-hmm. which, which did have a big impact on me. Um, and what were the what were other people's reaction to the to the suicides? I think that really troubled me almost as much as the suicides themselves. Is is that two of the kids in particular were very picked on, and you saw people almost becoming like their own PR team about how to publicize their grief in ways that were wildly inconsistent with how they actually treated the person. And I've always found that struggle that we all have between privacy and publicity and social media, I think, um, exacerbates this in, in very perverse ways. Um, but back then, I mean, no cell phones, no social media of any kind. It was just you show up in a room or, or the hallways. And I think often a Facebook is like high school lunch hour. Everybody bragging about what they did last weekend. And you see people that aren't able to do what some people are, are doing on weekends, aren't able to pay for the ski trip or snowboarding or going on vacation. How they deal with not being as happy with their lives as other people. Mm-hmm. And something like suicide, it just seemed like there was an exploitation of I'm grieving more about this than, than other people are. And you see that on social media now all the time. But I think that was my first exposure to it is you were not who you're pretending to be in your grief about this person while they were alive. So it's really not about them. It's really about you using it to fashion how caring a person you are when you weren't a caring person to them while they were alive. And I, I, I think I was, I was a terrible student, but I think I was obsessively attentive and sensitive to how people were 
processing the shared experience of being in school. And I wanted to know everything about how what motivated people explicitly, but also implicitly. And and suicide was a fascinating litmus test into into how some of those mechanics worked. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you said that you rode a bus for three years, um, and um, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, p- part of my healing process from the bullying thing was um, there was a lot of darkness. So I think I was looking for nightlights wherever I could to to fo- focus on the little crack of light where you think I'm not just in darkness. And one of them was the first day of, of high school was um, watching a girl who was reading her way through all the attendance and, and even class. She was always reading. And I, I, I just really... I find it very soothing to watch people read. Um, I don't feel that way about watching people write in a journal. I find that looks kind of like an itch, they're scratching an itch, but reading, it's a very pleasurable thing. Um, I think it started early. I distinctly remember, I think my only memories of my grandmother before she died were just, she was always reading. And it was just lovely to watch her face, these big glasses in front of her eyes reading. And my father has a lot of that himself, obsessive reader. So there, there was a girl who was reading, and she really caught my eye, and I wanted to spend more time with her, but I didn't want to, if she didn't like me, screw it up by talking to her. I, didn't, I wasn't really wanting to date her, necessarily. I just wanted to see a little bit more of her. So I, I this sounds terrible, but I, I followed her to the bus that she was taking and rode the bus with her. And it was about 35 or 40 minutes to get to her stop. And then she got off and I kept going because when my parents separated, my father lived on the other side of town. She was about two thirds of the way between my mother and my father. Um, and then I just began repeating this process of taking the bus with her every day. And, and all she would do was read on the bus. And the logic I had was if I don't interact with her, she can't really object to my presence. And I don't think I was too conspicuously weird or, or obsessive. You know, I, I just felt invisible. And, and bit by bit, I was just thinking, like, what can you glean about somebody without actually talking to them? You're just observing them. And my best friend for a number of years was a portrait artist. And I often think when you look at Andy Warhol movies where it's eight hours looking at the Empire State Building, he was a sick kid, Warhol. He was bedridden for many years. I don't think he's being eccentric or affected when he has that kind of attention span to really observe things and take them in. I think that very much is a natural state of being for him. And it certainly was for my friend doing portraits of thousands of people. And I, I was kind of developing that a little bit with her, just watching her read. I found, I found it very soothing. Um, and I began bit by bit trying to accumulate information about who she was. Based on and what I, she was reading? Based on who she was, what she was reading and just um, in, in the hallway at lunch or recess, trying to ask people a little bit about her. Um, but I, I, didn't, I didn't have the nerve to, to interrupt the um, observation, the, the shared time on the bus. That was very much the highlight of, of every day for, for three years. And then she found a boyfriend and um, went her own way. Um, but I 
had a friend in, enroll me in, in a three-day novel writing contest, which I didn't know that those existed. And when I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And, and so I wrote about 35,000 words in three days, but I, I needed to think of a story that I could just spontaneous prose throw, throw out a lot of information. And the thing that seemed appealing was combining the best day of my life with the worst day of my life, which was um, the bullying incident and finally talking to the girl on the bus and it leading to a first kiss. And, and so that was a, that's what the story was about. Best day and the worst day of a kid's life happening on the same day. And I knew what that first kiss was, was when I would miss that girl on the bus riding with her, occasionally there'd be a different girl who was on the back of the bus who seemed very much aware of who I was and what I was doing there, that I didn't belong and that I was very much stalking this other girl. And I think when I was 17, a friend of mine said, I've met this girl who would be your dream girl, but I found her first and I need you to come on a double date. And it turned out it was the second girl from the bus. And meeting her there, she said, oh God, it's the guy from the bus who's stalking that other girl. She knew it. She knew exactly. She, she was much better at Intel than I was. So let me get this straight. So you were watching the first girl on the bus and then there was another girl that was watching you watch the girl. That's right. Did you know that the other girl was watching you in the back of the bus? No, 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 not at all. No, I mean, she was very striking. She, I remember distinctly that she had uh, Gatsby, Gatsby and Daisy's green light were a big deal to me when I was a kid because I was told that story on a lake while my dad was rowing me on a, on a canoe. And it was told as if there was a green light on a dock on the lake that we were on when I was three or four years old. And my dad just told me the Gatsby story as if it was happening on that lake. I, did, I thought, somebody stole your story. This, this Fitzgerald stole your story. But she had eyes that always struck me, the second girl on the bus, as the light at the end of the dock. They were so green that I thought, oh, God, she's wearing these terribly phony um, green contacts. But they weren't phony. They were, they were absolutely that overwhelmingly green and um after i was introduced to her on this double date i took her from my friend and was with her for the next four and a half years she became my first kiss and my first girlfriend and, and first person i lived with so um it was very odd that the one the one trajectory that i was kind of, i guess pining over led me to a completely different existence with somebody else mm-hmm did the first girl know that you were watching her? No. I, I think the, the closest I got to having nerve to talk to her is I asked her if she would stay on the bus a little longer once. And she did. And I took her to a, a really nice bakery that was, that was in Vancouver. And I, I bought her some kind of baked good. But I mean, I thought this was all tantamount to like sexual harassment. Not, not sexual, but I felt like there was something not criminally wrong with what I was doing, but I, I was so deathly afraid of making her uncomfortable and she didn't seem very comfortable. And I only found out very recently that she saved the, the baked good that I bought her for many, many months, but I had no sense that she in any way appreciated the gesture. I, I thought she was just, she felt sorry for me and was willing to 
let me buy her a cookie or something. <laughs> so, so you wrote about that experience in the three-day writing course? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, submitted, I submitted it, and it did not do anything in the contest. But when I showed it to my mother, she showed it to some friends of hers who were in um, television. And another, another person from school I showed it to um, was involved in publishing. And it got me my first literary agent. And on the television side, they offered me $25,000 to turn it into a script. And the agent said, no, we'll go to New York and, and we'll publish it and we'll go to Los Angeles for a TV show. And both of those fell apart and I got nothing for it. What year was that? 2000, maybe 2008, I think, 2000, yeah, 2007, 2008. Okay, all right. Um, so you're with the the second girl who became your girlfriend. You were with her for for four years. Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah, that's right. And then, uh, um, how much time was there between when you the two of you ended that relationship and you went to Cuba, or did you go to Cuba? Cuba you... ended it actually. Cuba when I, I went to Cuba. Um, I don't know what I remember. I remember calling. It was very expensive to call her from Havana, and I talked to her, and she said, um, "We were in a very codependent relationship. Like, I don't think we had anything in common except how codependent we were emotionally to one another." So I called her, and she just said, "If you don't come back right now, I was only there for two or three weeks the first visit, but after a week, she said, if you don't come back now, we're we're finished." This is this is over, and I said yeah, it's only another couple of weeks, and and sure enough, when I came back home, she just said like your stuff is packed and and we're separating. Okay, because you had been living with her. Yes, yeah, for three years, I think. Okay, was your first first trip overseas to Spain? Yes, and that was with her. No, I, I went with my best friend. So tell me a little bit about your trip to Spain and how that led you to Cuba? Um, I, think, I think with Europe, I was a little bit inspired. My father and Che Guevara share a lot physically. Like when I saw the cover of the Motorcycle Diaries, my father at 25, that famous picture of Che staring up that Corda took of him, that's the most reproduced photograph in the world. Uh, my father has a picture I think it's a passport photo from when he's 25 where it, it it's laughable like it looks like he's his cousin or his brother sort of thing. So I think just just visually when I saw Che's face I was very struck at how much it looked like my dad and then reading the motorcycle diaries that this guy was a doctor and had this relationship to Cuba where he came to this fork in the road where he had to decide between carrying medical supplies or a weapon and ammunition and felt he could do more good for the Cuban people in a military capacity than a medical capacity. I just said, this is, this is one of the most extraordinary characters I've ever come across. And a lot of his thinking evolved seeing extreme poverty and, and the exploitation of colonialism with the United States and South America. And then he goes to Cuba and, and discovering Cuba is standing up to this country that's only 90 miles away. And my father describing what it was like to be in school at a time where they would tell them to hide under their desks when, when the bombs drop. 
mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, Cuban Missile Crisis was the closest, that, still the closest that the Earth has ever come to nuclear oblivion. Um, he grew up during that, so I, I heard a lot of his perspective about it, and I was I was always just fascinated with Europe. I had very romanticized notions about the literary community in Paris, and um, and I think there was a real attachment to Hemingway early on, but not. I'm an animal lover. I certainly don't want to hunt animals. So there's a lot of sides to his masculinity that really didn't appeal to me. Um, what did appeal to me was that he was somebody who learned five languages so that he was really talking to every, everywhere he was going. He was, I guess he was looking for correctives to an America that had kind of broken his heart. That's, that's what I felt about him mm-hmm. and, and felt much more at home in Spain and in Cuba than where he grew up. And there was a kind of Huckleberry Finn looking for his own river to fish in that I found very compelling. Mm -hmm. And all his stories to me seemed less about somebody wanting to talk than somebody who'd listened to an incredible array of people and learn really intimate stories in order to share them. And even carrying around his books all over Europe or all over the world, I've never seen such... um, the response you get when somebody sees a title that meant something to them is very powerful when you're, and I thought, what a, what a, what a thing to be able to offer that to people that when you've written something all over the world, people who've never been to the country you're describing or met the people you're talking about have this profound connection to them. Uh, that really impressed me about him. Mm-hmm. Not trying to be interesting, but trying to be interested in the world and trying to, be, that he was so seduced by the world rather than trying to seduce the world. That, that, so I felt like his sort of toxic masculinity now is sort of based on the former, that he's trying to be, uh, Truman Capote said he's a closet everything. I don't think he was a closet everything. I think he was just everything. I think everything came out of the closet and you just see all of it. Yeah. And, and I, I find that very interesting. Hmm. Um. So you mentioned um, part of the appeal of going to Cuba was that they, you know, could stand up to this big country, which is the United States. And you being a Canadian, how close were you to the U.S. border? In Vancouver? To the U.S. border? Yeah, in Vancouver. Oh, very close. Very close. I mean, all, all I think 98% of Canadians are within 50 miles of the U.S. border. If you go north, there's nothing there. It's just forest continually. Mm-hmm. So Americans forget that they were all in the deep south. <laughs> so how often would you come to the U.S. as a child or growing up? Not not much. A little bit of a little bit of Seattle. Um, I think I think I went and absolutely hated Disneyland at seven. I've, I've nursed a lifelong loathing of everything Disney and what it represents. Mm-hmm. Um, but. But that, that doesn't matter because all of our culture that we got was from the United States. And I think a big part of my thinking about being Canadian was that I wasn't American. I don't know what it is to be Canadian. I know that I'm not American. And that's a very different... When South Park does a movie saying blame Canada and, and start a war, I distinctly remember a theater just adoring them, making fun of Canadians. Try and make fun of an American's patriotism <laughs> on any level. Mm-hmm. Well, what did you think of, um, as a Canadian living in Vancouver, so close to the States, what were your perceptions of what America wanted to be 
and what it was. Well, I mean, back to South Park, I think it's interesting that, and I, I think they're brilliant satirists. It took me about seven years to catch up that it wasn't just piss and fart jokes, that like, <laughs> their satire is, is Jonathan Swift level. Um, but they had this observation that there are no teenagers or young adults in South Park. It's children and it's adults. But I thought that's not true. The teenager is America itself, which is providing the storylines. It's always America that's offering that. And America is perpetually in this teenage state of we're number one, we're number one, we're number one. Canada never had that burden because we weren't number one in anything. So there was a sense, and I think a British sense, of taking for granted the things that you really appreciate rather than endlessly banging the drum about how extraordinary they are. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's a more demure aspect to the national character that appealed to me. But I think we're... we're delighted by like our cousins to the south um just endlessly unsure of what they were so they're always yelling at you about what they are mm -hmm. and canada i think there was an inferiority complex in the sense that uh, so much of our arts was subsidized by the government or the radio has to be a certain quota of canadian content suggesting it wasn't as good that we needed help we needed assistance and some of the great Canadian writers like Mordecai Richler said this is a very negative thing to do in terms of instilling the perception amongst Canadians that their work doesn't stand up. If it's good, it can stand up. And I don't know if I entirely agree with that, but I definitely internalized the sense that if you're serious about performing on the world stage, you have to do it in the United States. And an unbelievably disproportionate amount of Canadian comedians, musicians, artists are, are there. And then people go, oh, my God, they're Canadian. But I, I thought, that's interesting. It's very interesting that whatever is going on in Canada, they don't stay very often. Some do. I mean, Margaret Atwood certainly stayed, and, and there are many other. Margaret Lawrence stayed. Um, but mo most of them, to, to make, I think, to make a living probably is the number one mm -hmm. reason, mm -hmm. is they have, they have to go south. And... And so, yeah, I, I think that Canadian identity thing is a big deal. That it, uh, and, and in particular, Vancouver is the third most filmed location in the world, Hollywood North. And my high school was the high school that was used in 21 Jump Street when Johnny Depp was on 21 Jump Street and many, many movies. So there was always a sense of Vancouver is the backdrop of so much television and commercials and films. I'm seeing it endlessly, but it's never itself. It's always pretending to be somebody else. It's always pretending to be somewhere else. It's Seattle. It's New York. It's Los Angeles. It's, and I thought, isn't that interesting that it's not legitimate to just be it itself? Right. It's one of the most beautiful places on earth, but it doesn't have a cultural foundation that can kind of justify itself to itself, which right. I, I find really interesting. So you went to Spain after, how old were you when you went to Spain for the first 18. time? 18. You were 18, and then you were, you were 20 when you went to Cuba? Yeah. So what did Cuba have for you that Spain didn't? Uh, I, was, I was just afraid of Cuba because Cuba was still in the fight with, with the United States, and it felt like you were just trespassing into a forbidden place. You know, how, it just seemed the most outlandish proposition that in the year 2000, a little country with a population of just over 10 million people could, 
could risk everything to stand up to the most powerful nation on earth. And in a funny way, America, you know, has invaded the entire world with its products um, that none of those were allowed there, that you could stand up to American values. And my thought was, why would you stand up to American values? Canadian kids were pissed off that the government was keeping MTV from Canadian kids. And these people are saying, no, like we, we have more valuable things than America does. It's just that we don't buy and sell them. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's, that was just very intriguing that they had the highest literacy rate, that all art, all art and cultural activities and sporting events were all free. So there was no distinction, um, social distinction based on how much money you have. There were just a lot of values that seemed, um, I always come from a, a very left-leaning family, um, that they just went for it. And it seemed like there were a lot of horrible, nasty, unintended consequences. But certainly immediately after arriving, I've been warned by so many people and so much of the media I read, the poverty you're going to see. That's true in a financial sense, but that's the only way that you're seeing anything impoverished. You're seeing such an abundance of humanity in ways that I'd never seen anywhere else in the world in terms of how people cared for each other, how they supported each other, the, the common sense of struggle and purpose and decency and integrity. And I thought, does this system get any credit for that or any of the things that, that succeeded in the revolution? Um, you know, that the healthcare, the healthcare, the education, the literacy rate, how safe women felt to be in that society in ways that was unthinkable in Canada or the United States. No gun violence, no drug, you know, drugs being the thing that you see in South America and Latin America that I'd seen. uh, There was just so many contradictions that were there. And I think contradictions and ambiguity have have always been something that drew me in in a a big way. And how would you say your identity or who who, who you thought you were changed when when you went to Cuba or or did it change at all? Um, I think it changed a lot in that I think I was always trying to find a way to leave home and, and doing it very poorly. I was always very homesick, but when I would go home, I I wasn't happy. So I thought, well, I'm going to find that one place that's going to solve this sort of like, like, you know, some bad, Italian movie where a kid can't leave his mother until he finds the perfect wife. I couldn't find the wife in terms of place. And yet I didn't like the mother. I didn't like where I was from. I wasn't happy where I was from. I just didn't know any, I didn't know any way to sort of make it work. Why weren't you happy in Vancouver? I just didn't, I just didn't feel at home. I didn't feel any connection. I wasn't, um, I, I just, I just felt like I, what I wanted to do with my life didn't, didn't fit what Vancouver is, is about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, Vancouver is a beautiful place to look at, but culturally, I, I thought of it as like dating the proverbial dumb cheerleader. It, it can be nice to look at, but to talk with it, not, not so much. Mm-hmm. So I, I've never missed it for one second in the almost 10 years I've been in New York, not for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then you went to Cuba and, um, 
Yeah, and how did your yeah how did your identity ch- change? Maybe this is kind of a repetitive question, but how did you did you become the person that you hoped you would be, or did you did you get out of Cuba what you hoped you would? Um, I I think I followed my mother's advice before I went, which was she said you have to look up some of some of my friends over there, and I I said I didn't know you had any. Friend, you've never talked about a Cuban in your life. And she said, well, I haven't met any of them, but they're there. And that was, that was very true. There were a number of people that I came into contact with. I think I was always searching for a surrogate family, a surrogate group of friends that I would connect with. Um, and I, I found that Cubans were willing to let you into their lives in incredibly rich and, and profoundly deep ways um, when there's no distraction it allows for a kind of uh, concentrated immediacy. And I think there's a fatalism to the, the national character in Cuba where it's like uh, friendship or love in wartime. Everything gets accelerated very quickly because they assume it's going to be over just as quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think I've always had that fatalistic streak just on my own as opposed to it being a byproduct of a system. Mm-hmm. And, and so I just found... And perhaps there's something something to be said about um, exploring my mother's em- emotionality. Uh, you know, she Russia had a very different relationship to Hungary than it did to Cuba. In Cuba, it subsidized it. In Hungary, it demolished what was going on and caused incredible suffering. Mm-hmm. And her her cutting all her roots and and coming somewhere new at 16. I mean, that was the, the Cuban plight was. All of these people who might leave are, are scarred terribly, and all of the people who stayed are scarred terribly. So it was a good place for a wounded person emotionally to go because you felt at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a friend of mine there had the observation that they could always tell Cubans in a room of Latinos because they're the ones with the watery eyes. <laughs> they're always on the verge of tears with a joke or, or some song or something sad that makes them cry. And I just thought, well, when you're coming from a place where you feel incredibly numb and nothing is really reaching your heart, um, that's a good place to go. Because a, a lot of stuff that I was seeing there all the time was was reaching my heart in, in sad ways and, and also incredible acts that I saw people do that sort of restored my hope about people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just feeling a lot. I was just, I mean, it was incredibly exhausting and draining too. I don't want to paint the picture. In no way was it a utopia. There was an extraordinary suffering, but um, there's also extraordinary joy. Mm-hmm. Who were some of the people that became your surrogate family members there, would you say? Um, I, I wrote about I, I, I created some composites in the book that I wrote just for time because you're covering in, in the memoir I did, it was 11 years. So I look back now, I mean, 18 years and probably 90% of the friends that I had there have left, have gone to Spain or Miami or South America. Um, and none of them sort of announced it to me. So there's just a lot going on underneath the surface of, of people. Um, but I, I very quickly, <clears throat> uh, met some strangers. I didn't arrive there with a place to stay. 
So I met a bookseller who was on the plane, an antique bookseller who was going there for uh, the, the book festival, a huge book festival in Havana. And he was a chronic alcoholic that was suffering from cirrhosis, which I didn't know. Um, so it would be the last time I, only, I ever saw him. But he was the one that put me in touch with somebody who was a Pan-American sprinter from the 1960s and all the athletes know each other. So that plugged me into the boxing. And then he also found me a place to stay near the Plaza de la Revolución where, where Fidel delivers these seven-hour Lincoln-esque speeches. Um, so I found a street and then it's just like the biggest small town on earth. You just, you just meet people very quickly and I'm shy in groups, but I'm pretty direct like one-on-one -on -one. and in Cuba you can just sort of see anybody and start talking to them and they'll give you seven hours of just walking around their neighborhood or um, meeting people and I'm not used to that in our culture of just every person you meet you're, you're kissing them you're embracing them you're being invited for coffee um, I just couldn't believe how much interaction there was and for like a a passive Canadian in, in a social context. It was just very, to, to, to be let into the culture, it seemed like the most incredible culture I'd ever seen, and yet they would share it. If they had, you know, a bottle of rum that was very precious to a household, they would not think about whether or not they should share it. And I came from the quote-unquote most livable city on earth with Vancouver, and I would never go to a neighbor for help with anything. Mm -hmm. Ever. I didn't know who my neighbors were. So I thought, again, this is an impoverished place where there's this kind of, no kids were told, don't talk to strangers in Cuba. My dad's a child protection lawyer. I, I, we were told in school from, from the beginning, don't talk to anybody that you don't know. In Cuba, there wasn't anybody that you didn't know. There were no strangers. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, again, is that you know, like just an accidental benefit of a broken system, or is that part of the design that you, you do trust your community, you know, that your family is not just very few people in a big house. It's, it's everywhere you go are people that can be trusted and that that's a better way to live. I saw a lot of, a lot of that. And it, it did change me. Um, I think I've always had issues trusting people so that you, you, when you go to a place and you don't know where, where to go, and I didn't know the language originally, um, you just have to put your faith that people will, yeah. uh, their good nature will, will assist you. I've, I've heard this, from, there's a wonderful travel writer who went, uh, a mother of a couple of kids, and she said it's a great way to travel for women if you have kids, because a community immediately responds to you if you have a kid. They, they want an opportunity to show you that they care and want to help. Mm -hmm. and, and she's noticed that traveling all over the world. And I just thought it was a very interesting insight. Yeah. Hmm. Is there anybody else um, in Cuba that you want to, to mention that became like a family, a surrogate family member to you? Um, well, I mean, my, my closest friend there was a female named Leades and, um, She's, she's just, I think a few months younger than me. Um, but then almost everybody else left, <laughs> which is kind of strange. They left while you were there or they left since? Well, just, just returning back again and again. Um, I think I probably returned over a dozen times for ex increasingly extended stays. 
and she's still there and she has a much better job and a better life. Um, I think at the end of the memoir, there was a, a, a girl that I hired for to do cinematography for me for the documentary I was filming. Mm -hmm. And there was almost kind of a fling there, but she had a boyfriend. And so she said, we will never speak to each other again. But when that relationship ended and I went back, it was interesting. I went back for Obama's visit in 2016 and I found her on Facebook and it had been several years since I'd only had the one encounter. And she was just a fascinating, extraordinarily intelligent person I, I really connected with. So I was hoping at least there could be a friendship there. And it turned out her entire family had fled to go to, to, go to Spain and I think Miami. And the money that they couldn't bring out is what she used to buy a three-bedroom apartment about three or f no, a little further, about eight blocks away from from the old Hilton Hotel. So she's in one of the nicest neighborhoods. So there, are, so when I knew her, she was living in abject poverty, where some disputes were settled with a, a machete. And now she's living in a three-bedroom apartment with a balcony. And I was just like, this is an, mm -hmm. uh, just really strange to know how you can take in stride your mm -hmm. life going from one extreme to the other to such relative affluence um right yeah so when did you start writing in cuba i think i kept a journal most of the time that i was there but i didn't think of it as a as a as material that anybody would care about i think until around 2007 um and Part of the journey into publishing, I discovered, was if you didn't go to journalism school and I didn't go to college, I, I dropped out of high school, um, you're competing against people. There's a whole apparatus set up to validate itself and its own utility in getting there. So what I, what I needed was sort of, I think, Cuba seemed like a unique angle to compete with Americans where they would have to struggle a lot more than I did to gain access to it. And then just the resource of not reporting on sports with boxers, but using their story as a more extreme example of, of uh, the universal question in Cuba. This Cuba's answer to Sophie's choice about whether to stay or to go. It's one thing if you're leaving with nothing to try to start over. It's quite another if you're starting from nothing and the moment you step onto American shores, you're worth hundreds of millions of dollars like baseball players and boxers. So, uh, I, I recognize the, I rec I recognize the story with that after I, I met this two time Olympic champion who walked into the gym where I was training in Havana and he had attempted to defect during the Pan Am games in Brazil in 2007. And because of that, Fidel Castro had spoken out personally to brand him a, a traitor to the Cuban people. And in essence, he committed social suicide where he was no longer a person in Cuban society. And he just walked into this gym where I was training and was smoking a cigarette under the bleachers and the shadows. And um, the whole gym just went silent. And I, I'd never seen that happen before. And then I just heard this repeated use of LLL. And when Cubans, Cubans don't talk about Fidel, they don't say his name even in their own house, let alone publicly. They, they motion for the beard or they say L, meaning him. 
And so when I heard LLL and the whole gym is stopping, I thought, oh my God, Fidel is coming to the boxing gym because he would just show up places. He would surprise people. No, nobody knew where he lived or, or where he was traveling. It was all a state secret. Um, and so I said, where is, I don't see the, the motorcade of Mercedes outside the gym. And they said, no, 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 it's Guillermo Rigando. And I thought, where? I just see this kid underneath the bleachers. And they said, no, that, that's him. And Rigando, despite being a two-time Olympic champion, is about the size of Tom York from Radiohead. He's five foot five and about 120 pounds. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was just a little street kid wearing knockoff a Versace hat or Nike hat and a Versace t-shirt and I approached him Cubans they banned professional sports on the island in 1962 so they all all the boxers wear headgear and Cuban media doesn't interview individuals because the only star in Cuba is the system that produces stars not not any individual superstar very different um, attitude towards that kind of thing uh, you're not supposed to celebrate an individual. It's all about the, the, the group that created it through their sacrifice. So I didn't recognize his face, and he looks like a gargoyle. There was an incredible sadness to his face. I think it was the saddest face I'd ever seen up, up to that time. And I introduced myself, and he smiled politely, and there was this gold grill over his front teeth. And I asked, I didn't really know what to say to him, and I asked where he got the gold for the for the grill, and he said, "Oh, I melted my gold medals into my mouth." Wow. And I was just like looking around, but I think there was just this recognition. I don't know where this is going to go, but I think I'm going to take this ride, and because I need this is a big deal of where sports and politics and a lot of history between two countries is coming to the front and I'm looking into the eyes of the face that is galvanizing a referendum about whether his reasons for leaving are the reasons why every, why the majority of people now also want to leave. And to tell that story, you had to go back generations to the boxers who turned down all these millions of dollars to leave and find out their reasons during their time and the relationship with the United States and where the American dream was at, the health of that, the whole canary in the coal mine kind of investigation, but also look at the kids who are on the way who would look at this guy and the ones from the past and decide for themselves, um, calibrating their own values about where, where, where they should go probably is where Cuba is going to follow. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, wow, through the accident of sports, I can deal with some much bigger things. Um, and boxers just happen to be, if not always the most articulate people, there's a directness that I found they encapsulated things far more succinctly and profoundly than most intellectuals weighing in on a lot of the, the surrounding issues um, that surrounded their life. So mm -hmm. one, one, for example, my trainer when I put him on camera for the first time and said, what's it like to be an Olympic athlete? We've won two Olympic gold medals and American promoters are throwing in crumpled pieces of paper into the ring while you're fighting. And when your trainer opens them, they're figures. They're $100,000, $200,000, just talk to us. Or they would go ringside and they would crack open a suitcase to show the money inside, like Pulp Fiction, just talk to us. How do you say no to that? How do you 
I mean, America people are killing themselves to sell out at the first opportunity on an American idol or anywhere they can. And he said, America is like a beautiful woman who's staring at you from across the street and she's madly in love with you and you have to be willing to ignore her and live the rest of your life in memories. And Rigondeau, when I asked him the same question about where are you at with staying or going, he said, all these other people, they can do whatever they did. I'm not going to be a three or four time Olympic champion on a street corner in Havana with nothing, living in a shack, talking about my good boxing days. I'm going to the United States and I want to make a lot of money and bring my family out and, and all of that. For him, the calculus was very, very clear. It was mm -hmm. all about money. What him. year was that that you met him? 2007, September of 2007. Okay. And then he escaped a year later, a year and a half later. And then you caught up with him in the U.S.? I caught up with him in Tijuana. I got a phone call from the guy who paid to smuggle him out, an Irishman who was the first person ever to get a Cuban signed a contract in Cuba and then get them off the island. Um, for those who don't know, every Cuban athlete that an outsider is talking to to negotiate a contract, it's punishable by at least 10 years in prison per conversation. So this guy took a huge risk. He has five kids. He's married. And he called me up and he said, Rigondo has escaped and he has a professional fight in Tijuana. And I've been told by the people in Mexico that helped smuggle him out that, and it's all organized crime. They essentially, the... Essentially, the organized crime in Mexico diversified their portfolio with drugs to include people because Cubans were such a lucrative human resource. Over The average price was $10,000 per person, man, woman, or child, to, to smuggle them off in a speedboat, especially athletes, because they can tax them and threaten their families, hold them hostage if they don't, they don't pay. So this guy said, the Mexican mafia said that they will kidnap me they will hire a hitman to murder me for $50 or they'll get a policeman to plant drugs on me and arrest me and put me in jail. So he had a whole private security detail. So he said, um, if you go with me to Tijuana, I will promise you an exclusive interview with him and I will tell you for the first time ever go on the record about how I went to Cuba and signed all these athletes and got them out and organized this escape route and all, all of that. And you can go in the ring with Rigondo when he fights in Tijuana all the way up until he wins a heavyweight championship. You can be in the dressing room and, and all of that. And at that point, I, I, you know, I was like looking at my wife who was sleeping in bed and, and just thinking, this is one of those moments. I, I don't want to have. I don't want to be arrested and, and put in a Mexican jail or kidnapped or <laughs> murdered. Um, but this is a way into the life that I want. This is the way into a story that's worth writing about and and doing something that's worth knowing. This is the kind of story where people say, "What happened next?" And those are the kind of stories that, unfortunately, you need if you don't have any connections in journalism or publishing. And you don't know how to do it. You just fall into it and figure out how to swim. So what did happen next? We crossed the border and, and went down there. And uh, I did get my first interview with him since he left. And, and the Irishman told the story of, of, for him, it was all a joke. It was all fun. He had 30 people who worked under him who could have 
gone to Tijuana, but he said, why would I let them have all the fun? So he left five kids and his wife crying and screaming at him not to go, but he just, for him, it was just a game. And that became, that became one of the real threads that interested me the most about Cuba with these athletes is that Rigondo's relatives came over from the Ivory Coast as early as 1520. And you have all these slave ships that are coming over. Havana was one of the big slave auction houses in the world, uh, mainly supplying the Northeast of the United States, actually. And the irony that in 1520, Africans are brought in to replace the indigenous population that's been wiped out by the Spanish through a combination of genocide, rape, disease, starvation, and suicide. Um, and in 2009, human beings are still being bought and sold to cross the same waters in the other direction to go north up to the United States. I thought, and nobody's really doing anything about this. If anything, they're incentivizing it more for people to profit off of human beings. So, so did you get those interviews on video? Uh, the first ones I didn't, the first ones I recorded them with audio and then I ran out of money. So I got the idea, well, nobody's going to lend you money to write a book, but they will invest in a documentary. So that's when I moved in that direction and found a producer interested in the story. And he just said, I I'm happy to kick some money in for you to go further with this, but only if you direct it. And I thought, well, I'm not looking to direct it. I'm looking to write a book about it. And he said, well, I'm not going to pay unless you, you do it because you're doing it now. You're, you're finding access and, and it's a good story. So just continue, continue along. And I'm a very big cinephile, but I don't know that I was a huge documentary person at that point. Um, but I just, I just sort of, I thought why Cuba is not the most lucrative subject to, to write about. Um, most of the books really haven't made any money. And so you had a lot of access to all the top people that had written about it that had really inspired me with their work in nonfiction and, and also memoirs and stuff too. So I found very quickly it wasn't hard to assemble every writer that had ever written about it across the political spectrum, which is how I wanted to approach the story. I called the documentary Split Decision because I thought no matter what side you are of the issue, you're aware of all the problems on the other side. There is no clear winner on any side of this issue. And that, that I hadn't heard anybody approach the story from that perspective that you, you, you lose either way, whether you stay or whether you go. Is it, it, the decision itself was the villain. And I'd never heard anybody Everybody had always said, if you stay, you're a sellout for not leaving, or you're brainwashed. And if you leave, you're a sellout and a traitor to Fidel. Nobody ever said, nobody should have to make this decision. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I found that that was very useful in attracting a lot of different voices um, from very different perspectives who appreciated l exploring the questions as opposed to looking for a definitive answer about it. Cause I don't know what the answer is. I found every family I met had been it, the easiest way to contextualize Cuba was through the broken family. There was no family that had not been broken in some way as a result of the revolution and Cuba bears some of the responsibility for that. And so does the United States. Mm -hmm. So you interviewed both the athletes and their families. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, all, all the, 
all the top boxers who basically I looked from the 1970s to present day to tomorrow and had six boxers and had them all speak to what it was like to make this choice in their own time because almost all of them become an Olympic champion at about the same age, 18 to 20. And then very quickly people are offering them huge money to leave. Mm -hmm. So, and you filmed over the span of how many years? Um, three years, three and a half years. Cause I was going back and forth to Cuba, but also Rigondo was on his way to winning a world championship and, uh, which he did actually in New York. So all this traveling around the world and in the end to watch him win a, a title, um, it just required walking about 30 blocks from my apartment, which was oddly convenient. Mm-hmm. And what became of the documentary? I ran into problems trying to raise money because I included obviously all the great Cuban boxers who didn't leave. The only footage that's available of them is from the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, and they are the most litigious organization when it comes to licensing footage. So putting out a, a trailer with eight or nine seconds worth of footage to try to promote the film to gain investment, uh, I approached them to license more footage to promote boxing and the spirit of amateur sports and they said um sure we'll do it but you're going to pay thousands of dollars per per minute and retroactively for using a trailer you owe us fifty five thousand dollars and we will sue you for it and all this and take down all advertising material that has anything to do with the trailer so it 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 just sunk the project completely so you have all the footage with you and it's just stick it's finished no the documentary is finished um, and the clip that you sent me, is that available online? Yeah, I, I made, I've made a couple of little short films that tie into it that are slightly re-edited from what's in the documentary. But uh, around this time, I was doing stories for kind of bigger name places, but none of them paid anything. So like Salon published a number of my pieces, and it was useful to have it in there because – Finally, it wasn't, I was in trouble with writing about Cuba through the lens of athletes because sports people said this really isn't sports. And when I go to any place that wasn't sports to publish it, they'd say, um, but these are boxers. There can't possibly be any other story except that it's sports. So it was, and it was neither. I wasn't writing about boxing. I was writing about people who happened to be boxers. But this, the the themes had nothing to do with sports, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Salon started publishing it, that was the right waters for publishing to be fishing for stories. And that was the first time um, Random House reached out to me to say, would you be interested in doing a book here? And that led to a little bit of a bidding war with another publisher. And, and then sort of what saved me financially was moving in the direction of publishing as the documentary was failing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any any personal narrative or videos in your documentary, or was it mostly all about the athletes and their families and in that group? No, it, it, it's 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 much more. I tried to do it that way, but there was no way thematically to bring them together, other than doing it through my interaction with them. So it it did begin <clears throat> with. Why does somebody from the outside go to Cuba? How do they get in with the Olympic boxing 
the, the Olympic the Olympic boxers and and that whole milieu, and from there learn the history of Cuba and the history of Cuba in the United States, and then explores these issues through this continuum of the great boxers about who stayed and who left. So it's it's very much me carrying the story. I, I do the narration. You're not seeing me in a lot of it, but but toward the end you do. You see me meeting Rigondo in New York and um, and him winning the championship. And I went back to interview his wife and kids who were in a very radioactive household with a defector. So they were under 24-hour surveillance by two state security cameras. And so this was this was leading at the time to police kind of chasing me around the city because because all of the filming at that time in Cuba was completely illegal. You're not allowed to interview any of these people and none of them would talk unless you paid them, which also <laughs> runs into big problems for them because they're not giving the money back to the government. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so the the most common interaction was, I'll pay you $100 for you to tell me how you turned down $10 million and we'll pretend that I didn't pay you. Right. Um, and you, and that conversation with, uh, Stevenson. Yeah. Um, did people, did pe people discover that conversation from your book, Domino Diaries, or had you released that bef before? I, th I think around the same time, more or less, um, Teofilo Stevenson, like, Back when boxing was a lot more relevant than it is now, America, uh, ABC's Wide World of Sports was a really big deal. I mean, there's only three channels. And the only time Americans would see Stevenson when he was annihilating American competition, which is the whole design of, of Castro supporting sports, is to symbolically beat more powerful countries when you can't beat them in, other, in actual war. But you can beat them in a symbolic war of boxing, and it's very effective propaganda to be better than Americans at baseball and to beat them up in boxing. And Stevenson was the great ambassador of that because he looks almost ex exactly like Muhammad Ali, except he's a lot bigger. He's a six foot five, two hundred and twenty pound guy in the nineteen seventies, and won three Olympic gold medals in a row. So he was a very, very powerful symbol of the successes of the revolution because he turned down $5 million to leave the island to fight Muhammad Ali. And what I saw hearing rumors about that he was an alcoholic and that he wasn't doing very well, he, he died only a year later, um, was that if you're going to use him as a symbol of all the successes of the revolution when things are going well and he's young and vibrant and everything, um, well, then it, he probably is a symbol for a lot of things that didn't work out so well in his decay. And that speaks to a lot of other things that are also very true about the revolution. And so it was very difficult to get him to agree to talk, let alone on camera. And I finally arranged it, went into his house, and um, I think he spoke very nobly about the revolution. And, and you know, he legitimately did turn down a career like Muhammad Ali's. And, and a life like Muhammad Ali's in order to stay in Cuba. But he didn't have gasoline for his car. He didn't have money to change the tires on his car. And he just lived in a, a relatively modest um, house in a, in a nice neighborhood. But there were tremendous costs to having made the decision he made. And I'm sure there would have been tremendous costs had he left and lived in a palace in Miami.
Did you know when he um, when he was talking to his interpreter in that conversation, which um, grew a lot of or drew a lot of attention in, in Miami? Said it was the front page of the Miami Herald. Is that yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. Did you know when when he said that that this is a big deal? Like what he just said is a big deal. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, we 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 both knew it. We both knew that this could. This this footage footage is radioactive, and and yeah, you know, getting getting it out. I even edited a little bit of that interview and sent it to the sent it to the. I mean, the Herald wanted a bunch of information about this because there's just nothing else like it. And and of course, a year later he's dead, so it's the last interview that he ever sat for. And you're hearing him say things like, you know, I'm broke, I have no money, and He's drinking very heavily. He's chain smoking while we're there. And um, yeah, it's just because he was so utilized as a symbol for, for these great successes and the propaganda of Cuba, it was inescapable that he could be used just as effectively for things that had gone wrong. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so we were both pretty scared and, and very quickly, uh, I was trying to get off the island as quickly as I could and, and keep that footage because... Everything that I did there in, in a documentary capacity was totally illegal. I never sought permission to do anything. Mm-hmm. I just I just knocked on doors, mm-hmm. and it worked. But I, I you couldn't you couldn't repeat it. I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was two thousand September two thousand seven. You met him for the first time, or Rigondo. Rigondo, I met I met Stevenson only once, uh, just before Osama bin Laden was killed, and that was the day that I left Cuba, and I, I was pretty sure that I'd never be able to go back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. So, okay, so let's back up just a little bit. Um, you said, let's see. So, when did you start journaling? How old were you? Journaling? Yeah, just writing in your journal. Uh, in a serious way, at eighteen. At eighteen. <clears throat> like every every day and voluminously at eighteen. Yeah. Okay, so eighteen. That would have been like nineteen ninety eight. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Yeah. Okay. Um. And when? Wh- so when was the first time you saw? The Passenger. What year was that? I saw The Passenger... I saw The Passenger at like a small art house theater in Vancouver. I I think it was 2005. And I've always had a a very deep connection to to Jack Nicholson because I think The Shining was a a big film for me when I was a kid. Uh, My dad looked a lot like Jack Nicholson while he was um, toward the end of his um, practicing law, like in court. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of similar themes in that, that my father had been a very accomplished writer in university and was doing documentaries at 18, 19 years old for the CBC and had produced a play when he was 18. But everything pointed towards him becoming a novelist. And specifically, a, a professor had given him a lot of encouragement, and then this compliment that in the end destroyed his career, I think, 
by saying that he was the most talented writer that he'd come across in 30 years of, of being a professor. And my father just suddenly went from being a lifelong writer and reader to it's a responsibility. I'm supposed to be something. Mm-hmm. And, and it paralyzed him creatively. And so I, I vividly remember some of my, the earliest sounds I can recall were him just endlessly typing books, starting things, but never being able to finish them. And a lot of that uh, pathos runs through The Shining of, of what writer's block can look like for some people. And it can very quickly lead to alcoholism and as it, as it did in, in The Shining. Um, so I know just Nicholson also is just so amazingly lovable and charming and yet quite frightening. He's got a very scary side. There's a temper and something devious and unsettling and, and all of those qualities, my father encompasses as well. There's a lot of overlap. And so when I saw this film, the passenger and my father and I had seen, we loved to watch movies together growing up. It was one of the things we, we shared um, a real passion for. Uh, I'd never even heard of the passenger and I had heard of Antonioni the director, Michelangelo Antonioni, because my father had just said while he was at film school, he was also a a film critic and a a theater critic at university, that Antonioni had taught him initially watching his films that people were always blocked by things. You're always looking through things to see people. And at first my father said, this was like, what a horrible director. You can never see people clearly until he understood that was precisely Antonioni's point is that we're never seeing people clearly. We're always distracted by things, even when we're not aware of what we're distracted by. And, and that whole perspective was incredibly intentional. And, and I saw that Maria Schneider was also in the film, The Passenger. It was just a poster of the two faces, of Nicholson's face and, um, and Schneider's face. I have, I have the poster behind me that I saw on the wall. That's an Italian version of the poster, but I saw the American version. Mm-hmm. And... I had known her from Last Tango in Paris where, I mean, what a strange film where two people, a man incredibly damaged refuses to allow any personal biographical details to be shared. It will exclusively be a sexual, very violent sexual relationship with a stranger and they sustain being strangers throughout the film until the moment he begs her to hear her name and once she says it, it can't be heard because she shoots him to death. Um, wow. <laughs> the, the Passenger was the next film that she did and then fell into drug addiction and, and her own hardships. So it was just this sort of mystical oasis when I saw the poster that this exists. These, I'm fascinated by her. I'm deeply attached to him. And Antonioni has always intrigued me and yet I haven't seen his work. And so I went into it not knowing anything about it and just uh mm-hmm. i just never had that experience watching a movie before like i did watching the passenger right and i guess i asked you that question it seems like it's kind of coming out of the blue but um i because i i read your the article the giving up the ghost and in that article you talk a lot about about your life that's not in the Domino Diaries. So it's almost like you had like a split life sort of. You had your life that was in Cuba and then you also had your life 
back at home because you didn't spend all 12 years in, in Cuba. You came back and forth. Well, so you raise a good point here is an editor came to me and said, you, you had 12 years in Cuba or 11 years in Cuba, the publisher that I eventually went with. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's true. Nobody said, were you living there the whole time? And I was afraid if I said I wasn't living there the whole time, they'd say, well, then what is this book? Like you were visiting over 12 years? How many times did you visit? Exactly what are the dates or whatever? So you don't get in the way of what people infer mm-hmm. was my thinking. And I wasn't doing it as a strategic way to dupe anybody. I just wanted for my livelihood to get a book deal. So so what what is stated is true. It's just a little bit elliptical. Mm-hmm. And so the details of the years covered in the book are accurate, but what's happening in between, if your assumption is, is that I never left, okay, but, <laughs> but yeah, there were a lot of back and forth with that. And there was back and forth going to, I spent a year living in Spain as well in 2004, but that doesn't really fit into a Cuba memoir. Mm-hmm. And I think as w- those unfamiliar with the publishing process, like you you can put in your book proposal and you can fight with an editor to get the things that you want. But there's a lot of stuff in there that is not exactly as you would have it when you're writing a book. You have to bend to things for coherence in terms of marketing mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. That's not necessarily your intention. Yeah, you, know? you, you almost have to create um, an identity, or, uh, an identity that the, that the publisher wants or that you think a reader wants or... <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so, you know, you have on your book, like whatever the subtitle is, you know, the last days of Fidel Castro's Cuba chasing Hemingway and all that stuff. I wasn't saying, hey, I want to write a book about chasing Hemingway, but I'm a white straight male who went to Cuba that has written about bullfighting and has involvement with boxing. So the natural thing is to, to try to shoehorn me into a Hemingway identity um, far more than I was seeking in my own life. I admired Hemingway, his life and, and his work, and I, I, I think I loved his letters more than almost any of the novels because he just he was so complex. Um, but that's not the story that people want to hear. They want to meet the old man in the sea, and they want to, um, mm-hmm. you know, what, what's Kohimar like now, and, and, and that sort of thing. So it's interesting if you're not fiercely trying to assert your identity to the world, but you're a little bit more flexible about letting them read into things and giving people room to project themselves and not getting in the way with some things that are not not really the way it actually happened. Um, I was I spent enough time not being published and not having any success that I gave up on ever making it, that I was not going to be shaped by being published or shaped by being, even even though I don't think I am, successful with being published or, or fit, joining the clubs that exist out there for making it, um, it feels very different, I think, when you've had nine years of complete failure. You define yourself to yourself on other terms beyond allowing them or success to define who you are. What do you mean by, by failure? Failure to publish? Yeah, I mean, just just I think the futility of writing a million words before I was able to sell one, um, you have to come to grips in a, in a sort of Van Gogh kind of way that you, you think you're pretty good at this wherever you're at. Like, I, I, I don't think I'm in the wrong profession, like that editor said to me. 
but I was also accepting that maybe, maybe I'm not meant to support myself through doing this. And there's a kind of a sad curse element that this is really what you want to do that drives you and motivates you and is your obsession. And yet it's not of any value to anybody else enough to even support what you're doing. It's not fun for them to read it or it's not fun for them to want to um, – the energies they're putting towards work doesn't make them want to put it towards you. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think I had to get to a point where I wanted to offer a reader something that could be of value to them as opposed to my own salvation or my own ego or those kind of things. I wanted stories that, pe- that appealed to people um, mm-hmm. and to tell those stories. And, and very often it involved telling other people's stories rather than processing my own stuff, right. it, writing in a therapeutic kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you saw the the passenger in 2005 and you said that was with your father you saw it together yeah okay yeah could you summarize what the movie is about just briefly because i want to then go on to what happened in 2007 (laughs) yeah well the passenger is about a very accomplished almost like anthony bourdainian level journalist who is roaming around the world largely a war war correspondent who finds himself at about 37 uh, in northern Africa trying to find a war that's being fought, a a revolution. And he's unable to find it. And his jeep that he drove out in the desert to find it gets stuck in the sand. So he has to walk a very long way back to his hotel room. And when he gets in the hotel and showers and there's no hot water and there's no soap and and he gets a glass of water. He remembers that the previous night he'd had a drink with his neighbor. So he knocks on the neighbor in in the hotel room's door and the door opens and he discovers that he's died. And he remembers that in the previous evening, the guy had mentioned that he'd had a bad heart. So likely he's died of natural causes. And for a couple of minutes, you see Nicholson in silence, just looking at this dead body. And for whatever reason, which is the mystery of the whole film, he decides that they kind of look a little bit similar. And why don't I switch identities with this person who I don't even know? And so he allows the world to think that he's dead. And quickly, he's got a a date book and a passport. He switches the photos of their passports, but he now has to find out who this person was. And can he start over in somebody else's identity and escape himself, escape his habits? And, um, and we don't know why he's seeking to escape all these things. So uh, off he goes all over Europe and especially in Spain to discover that this person was the arms dealer for the war that he couldn't find. And his life is very much in danger. So it's moving from an observer to a participant that I think is also a very important distinction in the story. And Schneider, Maria Schneider, rather inexplicably assists him along the way. She's an architecture student studying Gaudi in Barcelona. And I like the irony that uh, an architecture student is there to assist a man seeking to invent the new architecture of an identity. Mm. Yeah. Um. So you said you watched that like a hundred times? Or well, what changed, <laughs> which, what changed was the next year I read, I read an article saying that 
Nicholson owned the passenger privately. And he had finally, after kind of hoarding it, not allowing the film to really be seen, it was like Vertigo, like Hitchcock's Vertigo, it was very hard to find it um, shortly after it was released in theaters. We think of Vertigo now as, as up there with Citizen Kane, but it wasn't a revered film in its time. A lot of people really didn't like it. Um, the Passenger, similarly, was very alienating for Antonioni. It was a big disappointment in its time. And so Nicholson in 1982 acquired the rights from MGM and finally came to terms in 2006 to make a, a DVD. And with the DVD, he made a commentary throughout, throughout the entire film. And so I bought the DVD immediately and listened to this commentary. And what blew me away was just this was such an erudite, wise, calm, gentle, unassuming person that made me recognize as much as I know Nicholson as a celebrity and as an actor, I have no idea who this person is. And he says at the beginning of the film that, that this was the greatest adventure of my entire career. And I just remember when he first said that and thinking how much I loved the film myself for reasons that I found very difficult to articulate. If I could only find a way to talk to Jack who's a, you know, a very heavy lifelong smoker in, in his early 80s, well, at that time, I guess, in his, in his 70s. Um, but what a treat it would be to be able to have him expand on why this film was so important to him and, and the adventure of making it as well. Mm-hmm. So that, that was just another layer that I think pushed me over the edge into returning to it again and again and again. And offering it to people that I, I know and I care about their perspective to see if they find things in it for themselves. It just it, it became kind of a, a sphinx for anybody I cared about. I just wanted to hear more about it. Mm-hmm. And you did interview him for, for this article that's coming out in February 2019. You, you interviewed him, and that is part of the, part of the article. Um, what, what, did yeah. you, what did you find in the film, or what, did, what resonated with, with you in the film with The Passenger? I think I think going back to the first story that I fell in love with was Gatsby, and ironically, the the film that Nicholson always said he most regretted turning down. And this is a guy who turned down The Godfather, turned down The Sting, turned down a lot of hugely successful and critically successful films. The one he regretted most was The Great Gatsby, playing Gatsby, and he turned that down to be in The Passenger, and he doesn't regret being in the passenger, but I thought, uh, I think there's a lot of similar mechanics internally about identity between Gatsby and the passenger. They're just inverted. Um, so Gatsby is this, you know, great American story of transforming into something from nothing and passengers very much, you've become too much something and need to, it hasn't solved any of your problems that drove you to it. Mm-hmm. And I think Nicholson as this observer who strives for objectivity as a, as a reporter, that's what he's known for is he's the, one of the world's great objective journalists covering conflict um, feels as if as the title implies, he's more or less just a passenger. He's not participating. He's not steering things and that there's a, a real intrinsic dishonesty to, to what he's made his life about. 
and he's searching for some way to start over or, or even trying to understand if one can start over. And so this is, this is his role of the and somebody else's identity to, to do that. And um, I, I, I think I saw it, I think I recognized that I was, I was headed toward failure in Vancouver or in, in many different respects and needed, needed a way, needed to find some new identity myself in order to stay afloat, which, which ultimately happened through publishing and coming to New York and, and finding a strange path there with Cuba and marrying a New York uh, woman in order to get a green card and all that. So I, I saw, I saw aspects of that uh, in the film that just were very evocative and, and a lot of um, allusions jumped out at me about my own development of what I was escaping and what I was seeking and, and why. Mm-hmm. And did that come, did watching the movie in 2005 and having it influence you the way that it did, did that impact what happened in February 2007? <laughs> Not on a conscious level. Um, the way I found my way into print was uh, a friend of mine was at art school and mentioned that there were editors he knew there and I should submit something. He was always a very hopeful, optimistic guy. And I was very down on, on my luck at that time and thinking it was time to, to give up. And so I made a, a, a rather black joke to say, you could send them something, but you'd have to tell them I killed myself after I wrote it for anybody to take it. And given that he was somebody himself who was abandoning the identity that his parents wanted him to do, which was to go through medical school and become a doctor, and instead became a conceptual artist, I think he recognized the potentiality of that idea. And he got a big smile on his face, a wry smile, and said, that's actually a very good idea. Write your obituary, and we'll send the obituary with a letter you wrote that kind of reads less like a, a love letter than a suicide note, and we'll see what they say. And that was the first thing that, that I ever had published. And um, yeah, I, I wasn't sure how I felt about any of that because I don't like the idea of exploiting something like suicide for personal gain, but it was sort of like the passenger, like he wasn't exploiting an identity, it's just an opportunity arose. And he let it, I mean, there was some action he did to take that identity, but he didn't kill the person to steal their identity, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't think of this, this design to get published, but when somebody presented it, I did let it happen in, I think, a similar way. And what was it like attending the after party, um, as another or in disguise or as a posthumous person. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know anybody there. And just there was this rumor mill of who was this person who killed themselves and who was the woman he was writing to, what had happened to get it here. And I think that that's one of the most fascinating, darkly alluring things about suicide is that it, it, it becomes a prism through which you unavoidably view the life. It inverts the life into the the way that it ends and you know suddenly you start connecting all kinds of dots with van gogh's work with the suicide but who knows if these paintings were um exaltations of joy rather than anguish 
and tortured uh, the tortured artists that we believe him to be, of course, leading to the romanticized suicide. I mean, we don't know, but it's much it's much easier to do that after you know where the story ends. Mm-hmm. And so, hearing people speculating about who this person was that they didn't know, the first thing they learned about him next to his name was that he killed himself after he wrote it. So you just logically think that all these words are are kind of like a suicide note. You know, you know, thinking about this person, longing for somebody, it's not working, I'm separated from them. Clearly this must have drove the person to something we don't we don't know how they killed themselves, but we know they did. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a weird kind of puzzle with a number of very powerful pieces there, but but more importantly, enough gaps that people could read into it that I think made it compelling. Mm-hmm. I never worked on that way before, like with, with something yeah. that I think, I think I have a lot more going forward. Yeah. Um, and so you published that under your legal name? Yeah. Yeah. Is- I published it, published it under the legal name and that was the only, the only time I ever did. Mm-hmm. I took my wife's name for for publishing thereafter, and because uh, I think we were we were watching a documentary about Jean Michel Basquiat, and somebody in it said the first time they heard his name, they said that sounds expensive, <laughs> and she said, you know, one of the problems with you is that your name is really hard to pronounce. It's a Dutch name. Um, you should take use your full legal first name, hyphenated like Jean Michel, friend Jonathan, and then just take my name. It sounds nice. I thought, it does sound better, doesn't it? And the moment that I did that, uh, I remember somebody reading it saying, if there was a generator for a literary sounding name, it sounds like it would pump this name out. Yeah, I would agree. (laughs) That was really funny because, I don't know, it was, again, just letting something happen Uh more than... uh, I never thought about it before. I never thought about assuming a nom de plume or anything, but it's uh, it was it was kind of weird that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people historically have changed their name to get into the arts, and, and I didn't assume that I would ever be one of them. Mm-hmm. So, is um, the magazine that you published in two thousand seven under your legal name? Is that the same magazine that you're publishing this article in February, or is it different? Totally different. Oh, no, yeah. that was a little magazine called Pyramid Power, which I'd never heard of, and I don't know what they did afterwards. It was uh-huh. very much just a one-off thing. Uh, where this story will, will come out in February is called Hazlitt, which I, I gather is quite a, a prestigious Canadian publication. And I, I've almost published nothing in Canada or, or had any, not, not very much press in Canada. It's weird because you'd think New York would be a lot harder mm-hmm to get attention if you're Canadian. <laughs> why, why did you go with a uh, Canadian uh, magazine? Uh, I was commissioned the piece for The Atavist, and <clears throat> I think they wanted a 5,000-word piece largely about Nicholson and The Passenger, and I it just developed into something that was almost 21,000 words, and the editor said, I really love this, but this does not fit what we do. So you can shoehorn it into something that we do. But I think really probably this is a book. And so I'm happy to give you the kill fee and you can take it somewhere else. And 
So I submitted it five different places, and the guy who took the longest to get back to me finally did and just got it, like, uh, in a best-case scenario of somebody understanding what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so did publishing for the first time in February 2007, did that give you the confidence to then meet um, Rigando in was it September 2007 and set up an interview with him? Did that play any role? I think where journalism really came into it did, it did not, I didn't think of that as an interview in a journalistic capacity in 2007. Um, where, where I recognized that I was in journalism again was by accident was finding a way coming full circle into, into Mike Tyson's door, uh, finding a way, uh, his former trainer gave me his private phone number in Los Angeles because that trainer became Rigondo's trainer. And, uh, he said, you have his number, but you will never get to his house. This will never happen. He has an assistant. You're not going to talk to him directly, but you're never going to find a way into this, but good luck. And so for the next month, I think I tried at least 130 times talking to the assistant until finally the easiest way for him to get rid of me was just to say, okay, come to Las Vegas and we can meet at this hotel and Tyson will come. Mm -hmm. And Tyson didn't come. And I showed up at the hotel and called him one last time and he said, oh no, we'll just do it at the house. And that's how I got into the house and... He lived in a gated community in, in Henderson, Nevada, about 13 miles outside of Las Vegas. And the first thing Tyson said when he came down the stairs, and it was full of marijuana smoke, and he said, how did this white man get into my house? <laughs> yeah. And not in a funny way. I mean, he was angry, and I figured out a way to stay there and 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 stayed for an hour talking to him and we went pretty deep on a number of things about him and and also myself and uh when i was talking to academics about cuba one of them i mentioned offhandedly about tyson and he said do you realize that how did this white motherfucker get in my house is probably the greatest lead i've ever heard to a story and i said well it's not a it's not a story it was sort of talking to him about what would have happened if he fought the great Cuban fighters and that sort of thing. And he said, no, 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 here's my editor at Sports Illustrated. Call him now and tell him that and tell him I sent you. And I think a lot of editors kind of recognize that if you can, without paying for it, find a way into Mike Tyson's house and get an exclusive interview with him, that's not an easy thing to do. And it's demonstrating skills that are very germane to, to the pursuit of journalism. Did you, did you interview him with a video uh, camera or audio or? I tried to interview him with the camera, but after the, how did you get inside my house thing? I said, do you mind if we film this? And he's like, you're in my house. You're not going to film me while we're here. I don't even know how you got here sort of thing. And, and so I, I, I did have equipment in the car in the back to film it, but he just said, absolutely not. So I did the interview. I'm pretty retentive uh, with conversation, like not Truman Capote, 95% recall, but I'm pretty good at it. And I did transcribe that interview. 
uh, I've interviewed Tyson subsequently for Amazon and a couple of other places. He never took issue with anything that was quoted in, in the article or, or in the subsequent book where I, I recount that exchange. So I think it was fairly accurate. Um, but yeah, I wish I did have a recording of it because it was uh, emotionally, it was, it's quite something to see somebody who saved your life when you were a, a bullied kid at 11. Um, I think that's what ultimately protected me being in the room with him is he's not somebody that's experienced a lot of gratitude as a human being for having done good for very many people. And it scared him. I think it scared him as much as I was scared that he was going to assault me was, uh, and he said, how did you get here? And I said, well, it, cause you, you said, you saved my life as a kid. I wrote you a letter while you were in prison to say thank you. Mm-hmm. And, wow. and that caught him off guard. Yeah. And that's the opening scene in your book, The Domino Diaries. That's right. Um, what year did you? What year did you publish Domino Diaries? The interview with Tyson was um, Easter 2010, and the Domino Diaries I think was published 2014 on my birthday on June 3rd. Okay. Um. So. Uh, so your your publisher um, categorized Domino Diaries as sport, is that right? As what? Sorry? As sports. As sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did. And um, and I I read it. I just finished it yesterday, actually. And I think it um, has a there's a lot more in it than just sports. I mean, there's um, a lot of um, you know, your relationship with, um, well, the people that you met in Cuba and, you know, you talk about, you know, your family and also you talk a lot about like your relationships with, with women. Um, and you've, and you mentioned to me just in our, in our conversations that, um, that women, um, responded to the book differently than say, men <laughs> or, yeah. um, people, um, you know, in the publishing community. So could you, could you talk a little bit about that, about how women have responded to your book differently? I just think women, I, I, yes, it was very much categorized as a sports book and, and not entirely misguidedly. Like, I mean, some of the, the critical success that it had, it didn't have any commercial success, but I mean, it was nominated for the, the Penn ESPN award for literary sports writing. So, People in sports appreciated it, and it opened doors in that way. But I think in terms of it being a, a memoir about other things not to do with sports, with relationships, with like what we were talking about, finding a surrogate family, um, a sense of community, the values that Cuba espoused that very much drew me to it, um, those kind of things, uh, women just seem to get it a lot more than men. And... I think Cuba has such a reputation for really being where you go to get rum and cigars and um, very available prostitution, you know, where a lot of divorced men go to feel like a king with some young Cuban woman who's desperate for a, a, a green card to get out. So it has a, a justifiably very bad reputation. You can certainly see those things when you travel there in, in abundance, 
Um, I didn't want to write a book like that. I didn't, I didn't live that. I wasn't there to find easy available sex and, and that kind of thing. I found, I found the complexity of women there to be one of the most compelling features of being in Cuba was just how secure women felt in the absence of advertising, making them feel endlessly ugly and, um, attacking them however they look and, and attacking uh, whether they go into business or, or keep a family, just, just without, with, or, with, a, with a society organically creating its own culture in the absence of marketing, which is there to make you feel unnecessary things that you're missing. Um, a lot of the propaganda in Cuba is there to say, we understand that a kid who has one toy wants two toys, but there's a benefit that two kids have each have a toy. There's a benefit to overcoming some of these selfish impulses that we know is human, but but we can we can rise together if we look out for one another and get past the individual, the individual, the individual. And I just saw huge benefits of that with women because you you often hear, uh, perhaps justifiably, that you know, is a very sexualized culture in Cuba. So women, wherever they go in Havana are whistled at and hissed at everywhere and talked to. But Cubans women's perspective on that largely is that it's an art form to flirt in that way. And they in no way, no way feel threatened by it. Rape was unheard of. I never saw women afraid to be at three o'clock in the morning in a street, a street with no lights there was not a sense of being afraid of the community to be afraid of men in that way, um, which was just very contrary to the, to how women had been, um, I, I guess, just I impacted by threats in the same way I, as a kid, was terrified of being kidnapped all the time. When you look at the data of kid, and I'm not saying these are the same thing, but I'm I'm trying to make a broader point that kidnapping statistically is a result of parental kidnapping and running away. It's not some stranger generally who wants to steal you off the street and haul you into a van and, and take you away and raise you or something like that. That's a worst case scenario that's terrifying, but it's, it's not the rational fear that, that exists that that's out there. And, and I think a lot of, making women be petrified of, of the dangers that are out there is, is focusing on a worst case scenario when you're far more likely to be raped by somebody you know and trust than a stranger, right? But it's, it's easier to market the relevancy of, of some of that campaign if you go to the most extreme scenario to appeal to being terrorized, mm -hmm. just as terror is marketed in the United States that, you know, we're so at risk with Islamic fundamental terrorism, but we're killing each other and we're killing ourselves far infinitely more than Islamic terrorism. But, mm -hmm. but Islamic terrorism is this big other that's so frightening. And I just saw stuff in, in, in Cuba with them finding their own way with issues. I'm not saying they were the right way, but they were, they were compelling arguments to what I was seeing. And there were real benefits to what I was seeing from a society that didn't define itself by what it, what it acquired. It was like, there was no materialism. And, and so not to say that they didn't want to have good internet and transportation, you know, reliable transportation, all those kind of things. Of course they did. Um, but, 
there was very little distraction in that community, and there was a huge degree of, of reliant. You couldn't survive without relying on many, many people. And I find, I find in our society and capitalism engenders this, um, the more successful you are, the bigger the walls are around you. You need to guard yourself endlessly. And it seems ironic to me that um, we're all striving to make it, but once you make it, a lot of these people seem even more unstable than the people who are desperate to make it. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about Bourdain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, how did he impact your life? Well, working on this article about the passenger, it was, it was spooky because when I was only 50 miles away from the destination of this pilgrimage to the, the hotel where Antonioni shot this famous seven minute final shot or penultimate shot, in the passenger, the news came on the radio that Bourdain had, had died and and how he had died was also aired. So I, w- I was fascinated. I'm always, I mean, he's such a lovable person, but especially in the ensuing period after his death, um, it's very interesting to me how almost nobody spoke out in a negative way about it despite him being such a, 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 a very outwardly left-wing, political, um, antagonized Trump at, at almost any opportunity. But it just seemed like there was a, a unifying collective mourning about his death, the impact of it, that was very interesting. Because I can't think of another person dying where there wouldn't be some, I'm not gloating, but you know what I mean, like mixed reactions. Right. I mean, what, was, what, what did you think when he died? Um, I mean, honestly, I wasn't, I wasn't really that familiar with him. I mean, I, I knew who, I knew who he was. Um, but I think it came, um, on the heels of a couple other, uh, suicides, um, pretty famous people. Was it around the same time as Kate Spade? I think. Same day, I think. And then there were, there were a couple others. So I just remember thinking about um, them as a kind of a as a collective of 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 people who all um, died around the same time. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I honestly, I, <clears throat> I I didn't really. I work in public health, and so I deal with um, you know I, I go to conferences on suicide awareness and things like that. So it's kind of um, something that I, that I do think about a lot. And so I don't know that I was really struck necessarily by Bourdain. Hmm. I guess, I guess I was just taken aback by him. Cause, cause like you, I, I think I've done a fair bit of research into the literature on suicide and the moment you tally things like the suicide rate is almost triple the murder rate in the U.S. You're much more likely to kill yourself with a, with a firearm than somebody else. Um, firefighters, policemen, soldiers are all more likely to die from their own hand than the dangers of their job. And people go, what, a, a soldier is more likely to commit suicide? I mean, to, to die from suicide than, than to be killed in armed conflict? I mean, that's extraordinary. And... I think I included the detail that, that the estimates are that 25 times more people attempt suicide than succeed, mm-hmm. which, which would place it 
I think I think I, I crunched the numbers of, of how how densely populated a New York subway car is on on like a morning or evening commute to or from work, and it works out to one person in every three subway cars that year will attempt suicide, which is I mean it's it's just quite something when every day you're you're walking into one of those three cars and just not thinking about what people might be struggling with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I may have mentioned this to you, but, um, I have, I have two nieces who are 10 and 12 and they sometimes listen to, to the podcast. And so I was asking them what topics I should cover. And, um, and they both said suicide because it's, you know, people are talking about it and they're 10 and 12. And, um, and so, um, you know, I, I don't, it hasn't, I don't know anybody personally. I mean, I don't know anybody who died by suicide, but it is something that, that I hear about pretty frequently. So <clears throat> I think you, I think you bump into it a lot more. Like once you raise the subject and people feel comfortable, mm-hmm. um, I didn't have a direct suicide in my family, but I think the way I internalized my father's alcoholism and being such a heavy cigarette smoker that it was it was suicide in slow motion mm-hmm. was that if this doesn't stop this is leading to a very clear destination and why why is this happening why why is he created a life that that is it seemed as if the entire life was built around escaping it which was which, which I didn't like at some point I was prodding him to go to alcoholics anonymous and I remember at a certain point going this isn't about saving him. This is about saving me from, he's not failing at going sober or failing at quitting three packs a day of smoking. He's succeeding at something you don't want to accept, Mm. which is he wants to self-destruct. He wants to self-annihilate. He doesn't want to do it with a gun, but he is doing it with every cigarette and every sip of, of this toxic substance. And so I remember saying to him, if you're not going to go to AA, I need to go to therapy. I need to look at why I'm trying to keep you alive when you, you don't want to be. Mm-hmm. And, and that, was, that was useful because I thought, boy, it, it's sure calling me on my bullshit that I think that this is some form of altruism or, or a primary concern about his well-being. When it, it's my own well-being. It's fear of, of being, not having him mm-hmm. as, as a, a lifeline or whatever. But... I recall just how suicide would would um, brush against me growing up. Uh, we had a, a group house that was across the street from where I, I lived with my mother, and it was like a nice neighborhood. I was like, what's a, what's a group house? How does that work? And I met this kid on my soccer team. Where's your mom? Like, like are we going to go back to your mom's house? No, I live in a group house. My mom committed suicide when I was eight. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, I, yeah, terrible. She left him uh, a note on Christmas Eve that she she killed herself the next day, and it just said it just said like to whom to whom it may concern, like give him a good Christmas. And I thought, safe bet it was not a good Christmas that <laughs> year for this kid. My yeah. God! Wow. But I uh, that girlfriend I mentioned the the second girl on the bus. The most sane member of her family was an architect, and I had, I think, one of those horrible one-week rebounds after you break up and you think it's over, and then you get one week and think, are we going to go back to what it was, and you don't. You just have a torrid sexual thing, and she mentioned that that uncle 
had reached out to his ex-wife to say, after 10 years, I, I finally, I get that we're meant to be together. And she was living in Greece at that time. And, and she said, no way, you're crazy. There's no way we're going to be together. Mm-hmm. And he, he went into Stanley Park, like Vancouver's answer to Central Park, and, and shot himself. Wow. So I, I kind of feel like it's, it's I, I know a lot of people, a lot more people who haven't touched their life almost almost as much as alcoholism or drug addiction, substance abuse. It's just something that people don't talk about until it's sort of okay to talk about it. Yeah. It's, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I'm, I have family members who have, you know, suffered from, um, drug addiction and, and that's part of the, one of the reasons why I started this, this podcast was because, um, I had someone who was really close to me who, sent me a text message and it was one year clean and he had been using for years and he said just want to let you know like I've been clean for one year I just want to you know thank you for for helping me and to you know to rewind a year before that I um my first person I interviewed on my podcast Tom Bodkin I had known him for years and didn't know that he um was in recovery and he had he attends narcotic anonymous meetings like regularly and mm-hmm. and and I had known him for five years or so and um and so I was just telling him about this family member that at that point I was worried that he that we were going to find him dead like that's what I I was just every day of my life I was waking up thinking you know this person that I care about I, like the today could be the day you know and so I told him about that and he's like well I've been in recovery for uh, 12 years now, this my, my friend. And I said, really? I, I had no idea. And he, and he wouldn't, he, he never shared it never shared it with us. And I, and I work with him. And so I was able to connect him with this, um, with my family member. And that started the path of, of recovery for him because he got introduced to the NA meetings and, and, um, and after, you know, it took several times, but he finally got clean and then he was clean for a year. And I just thought, you know, we're, we have these stories, we have these, you know, life experiences that we're not sharing. And if you share them, it could save a life, you know? Well, I just, I just think, I think that, I think that the facet of him having this job that he kept describing again and again and again as the best job in the world and, my whole life is a series of lucky breaks and um, kind, kind of uh, kind of like Gatsby, but like showing you, like like giving you the backstage pass into the Gatsby thing. Mm-hmm. Being, mm-hmm. being like, I can't think of too many people in American life who get a pass for smoking cigarettes publicly or, or openly drinking when they've told you their great aspiration as a youth was to be a heroin addict. These seem like pretty counterintuitive tropes to to become a successful personage in American culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. even like rebels do it, but Bourdain seemed to just straddle like high dining, but also like to be seen at a taco truck or you know, like e- eating a burger at White Castle and that sort of thing. Like he liked to show you that he could do both very effectively. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know, I just, I, I've always, I've always sort of, the first books I read were biographies on Mike Tyson, as much as reading the, the writers, the great writers of literature that he recommended influenced him. And then I read a lot of biographies on those writers. I've always been interested in 
the process of creation as much as what's created. And philosophically, my father always objected to that. Like we shouldn't, who cares if Celine, not Dion, Celine, the writer is, is an anti-Semite or, or, you know, all these people where we find these ugly things. Was Lewis Carroll a pedophile? Does it affect your enjoyment of Alice in Wonderland? Is it the reason why Alice in Wonderland is disturbing? Cause he's secretly a pedophile, all these kind of things. I find it endlessly fascinating and it enriches the work mm -hmm. in terms of its complexity. But I know for other people, it's hard to listen to Michael Jackson when you know all the money he's paid for settlements for kids, very possibly he abused. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I don't know. I, I, I find it very hard to separate that. And I found Bourdain seemed to win the lotto was how he presented it. But you see his ambition, I, I don't think is that different than most contestants on American Idol trying to like get that big record court, rec recording contract and, and become the next big star. Um, and there's something scary about that to me that you're increasingly the schema seems to be that you're a winner or a loser in society. And the losers seem to have such anxiety and shame about not like making it in a very narrow way. And then we look at all these quote unquote winners and there's a lot of suicide there too. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of um, displeasure and heartbreak and lack of satisfaction and fulfillment. So it seems like on both sides, people, something about this game seems very rigged and I'm not sure I'm not sure who created it or who's winning exactly. Yeah. Well, well, Bourdain, Bourdain wrote 13 novels and all. Yeah. And not just suicide in a general way, mm -hmm. but specifically hanging himself in a bathroom is something that's not infrequent in his books, in his fiction. Mm -hmm. And it's not infrequent in his humor. And when I read Catcher in the Rye, I don't think I noticed it on the first reading, but by the second reading, I was like, are you aware how often he's talking about killing himself? This kills me. This ki like it's kill, kill, kill. You were supposed to jump off a bridge if such and such didn't happen. Suicide is everywhere in that book. I doubt there's a chapter where it's not referenced. Now, it's, it's evasive, but it's implied. Mm -hmm. again and again and again it's just nobody's taking it literally but we're talking about an unstable kid where he's literally willing to freeze to death in central park then go to the most dangerous place he knows home hmm. wow and, I, and so i just thought this is a the guy who's written this is half jewish and has liberated several subconcentration camps in world war ii was at d-day a lot of this sounds like a soldier coming back to civilian life who can't cope with what they saw. Mm -hmm. And yet it's viewed as a book about a teenager. Listen to your parents and you won't end up like this kid. And it's like the book is really saying the parents are the problem and that the society is the problem. Mm -hmm. So isn't it, isn't it interesting how it's taught in exactly the, the, the inverted intention? Yeah. And, I don't know. There's just something I found it. I find it fascinating with suicide. And I think Bourdain's death brought it home that murder and, and the grislier, the better is, is the most shallow form of entertainment in the culture. It's the most purient, successful way to entertain people. And yet 
Suicide is the exact opposite because it's so there's so much depth to it. There's so much internality. There's so many questions that get raised. Whereas murder, it's just you're just on for the ride, which is amazing to me. Mm-hmm. But we love it. We love serial killers. We love assassins. Um, a lot of heroes in American life, starting from Jesse James or, or Al Capone, <laughs> or like mm-hmm. you know, very evil people that we mythologize. Mm-hmm. So you said when you started to write this article, it was originally going to be 5,000 words? I Is think it, that was the expectation, yeah. And you just found that you had a lot more to say than you had anticipated? <laughs> well, I think, I think when you've struggled, I don't know that I've struggled with depression, certainly suicidal ideation, that a lot of, a lot of the ways in which... Um, I just had this feeling of sort of like a conveyor belt that was pulling me over a cliff. Part of that was economic because I'm in a profession where it's very hard to stay afloat. Like I just published with Simon and Schuster and I'm still on Medicaid. And I think if you said that to somebody who's racking up $150,000 of student loans from journalism school, they'd be like, well, wait, most of us aren't going to get published by Simon and Schuster. So if you're going to be on Medicaid and you're like winning at the game, what does it say about the game? You know, and, and I think emotionally there was a, a component to that as well. So very often I was drawn to people that struggled in their time, um, some contemporary, but, but, you know, there's a lot of very chaotic people that we romanticize their struggle, but boy, being in that struggle, it's, it's very, very far from romantic mm-hmm. of being afraid about where you're going to pay your rent or, can you can you sustain a marriage economically? Because if you know, like sex, if if money becomes an issue, it's ninety nine percent of what your what the tension is in the relationship. If it's not an issue, it becomes very minor. If your sex life is healthy, you don't really think about it. You sort of take it for granted. This works, but if it doesn't work, it's all you're thinking about. Will this ever come back? Will this ever work? All this doubt and anxiety and everything. So, um, I think. I think some of these suicides with high-profile people that are magnificently successful um, does the opposite of what social media does a lot of, which is it allows you to think, maybe I'm not doing as bad as I thought I was at being happy in my own life or appreciating my life and, and all of that. It, it raises questions that I think are maybe hard questions, but um, help you grow a little bit that you can overcome some things or move into discomfort and there's something positive for moving into discomfort as opposed to a very safety first attitude towards anything that makes you uncomfortable we just stop mm-hmm. and i think with the suicide stuff there's a there's a reason why almost every organized re- religion reserved its worst punishment for people who did it because it's very threatening to the order mm-hmm. yeah uh, so yeah um so let's talk about what your plans are for the future. <laughs> um, yeah. you, you'd mentioned that, uh, I guess it was an editor that pointed out to you that all of your, your work, um, either your books or your articles, have in some way to do with, um, with your personal pilgrimage. And mm-hmm. um, do you see yourself on a on a pilgrimage for the rest of your life. Um, what do you, what do you see for yourself the next 10, 20 years? I think it's funny. 
I, I guess somehow mystically you and I are the same age, which doesn't seem possible, but it is. Um, but I think there is this moment where you're aware of not just moving through time, but time moving through you and through other people. And so a lot of what this article, this last article was about was sort of when you're on one of these pilgrimages, part of what becomes the most transformative and meaningful moments are like the in-between moments. They're not the destination and they're not even the journey per se. It's sort of when you, maybe a flight is delayed for two hours to somewhere you want to go and you sit down somewhere and you don't read a book or you don't listen to music. You're just alone. And where your mind goes, thinking about your parents getting older, thinking about people who've died, thinking about, um, choices that you made um, that led you somewhere or accidents interrupting the path that you were on. And so some, some of these pilgrimages are not just the, the capital P pilgrimages where you go, but internally um, you can connect the dots of important moments that didn't seem important while you were living them, but were instrumental in taking you to places that you are now. And um, I don't know how I would plot out, any of the stuff with, with writing and, and coming to New York and, and sustaining a life here for almost 10 years. But I, I have no idea where the next paycheck comes. And it's funny to be almost 40. I mean, my dad's plan B with writing not working out was law school and a private practice of child protection law. I don't have any skills. I'm a high school dropout competing against mainly Ivy League competition. And and the jobs that we're competing for don't really offer much sustenance. So I, I always have this feeling of like, I don't know what the next thing is. I just keep trying to go after the things that um, inspire me or, or move me with stories. Uh, almost always, not always, I've reviewed like a whiskey for Bloomberg, but almost all the stories I've done are very much in line with my own passions and the people that most obsess me. The challenge becomes trying to sell it to somebody that will pay me to do it. Yeah. Um, and so New York, New York has been very good to me in the sense that anybody that's in big arenas of ambition, uh, chances are if they're successful, they're going to be passing through New York pretty soon. That's, that wasn't true of Vancouver, which is part of Vancouver's charm also is that you're out of that, that quote unquote fast lane. Um, I don't long to be in a fast lane in any sense. I like the access of people whose work I really admire, but I don't like anybody who says I could never live anywhere but New York. I'll give you a psychiatric conference worth of issues <laughs> that they're working with. It's not a healthy place. It's a lonely place. And, and, and yet it's very exciting and there's joy as well, but it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. I don't really know anybody here who isn't finding coping mechanisms as quickly as they can. Yeah. Do you think you'll stay in New York for a while longer? Um, I would, I found, I found the first place like by accident. I traveled all over Spain. I had this weird encounter once with somebody when I was living in Spain in 2004 and I said, I, I said, how long have you been in Spain for? And they said, or I said, what have you seen in Spain? And they said, I've seen, I've seen everything. How long have you been here for? And they said, two weeks. 
And I thought, wow, I've been here for 10 months doing nothing but trying to see as much as I can. I don't feel like I've seen anything. How the hell would you see everything in two weeks? I didn't say this, but I was thinking it. And the one city that had always kind of been a bit of an itch to go see was in the south. And I, I bumped into it a few different ways. Orson Welles was buried there. Hemingway said it was the ultimate place to have a honeymoon. And then Rilke said, all my life I've dreamed of a city until I found it there. And I'm specifically not saying its name because I don't want people to go there. Okay. I, 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 I arrived there and my, I met waiters at the first restaurant I went to and they were all 50 and 55 and 60 years old. And I said, where, where are you from in Spain? They're all here. You, how long you worked here for? 25 years, 30 years, 35 years. You never wanted to go to Madrid or go anywhere else? Like, Have you seen our town? <laughs> and yeah. I thought, what an, what an interesting idea. Yeah. That you would just be content. Yeah. <laughs> that you'd be content with where you live, be with content with how you live, with your community, your town. This drive that everybody has towards aspiring to be a tourist everywhere it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't speak to something like I think um, Werner Herzog said, tourism is a mortal sin. Mm. And there are times where I think, uh, yeah, there's nothing, I mean, the great irony of Hemingway is every place that he made very appealing or quote-unquote discovered for, for broader audiences, it's the worst place to go in the world. Any bar that he suggests is like the, the perfect bar to go to in Italy or Paris or, or Spain. It's the, invariably the most expensive and awful experience you can have mm-hmm. going to as a result of him, him trailblazing it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Huh. All right. Well, um, is, there, is there anything else you want to mention? Anything else you want to say? No. Wrap up? No. <laughs> No, I think we covered a lot. Yeah, we did cover a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was fun. Thank you. It was fun for me, too.